The date was April 15, 1970, and all across the news organizations, the story went out. It reads like this. The stricken Apollo 13 spaceship is slightly off course, and its astronauts will miss the Earth by 80 miles and soar off into a distant fatal orbit if a steering correction is not made tonight or tomorrow, controllers reported today. That story gripped the minds and the hearts of Americans. They were glued to their televisions as they watched fiasco after fiasco of Apollo 13 unfold. But ultimately, all of them were brought home safe. The whole country rejoiced. But I wanted to focus on the little tidbit of information in that story as we conclude our message series called Out of That Grave. I wanted to focus on the reality that small changes in your course over time can make a huge difference. A little bit of trajectory change, unanticipated, will put you miles off course. Over time, the miles get wider. There are a couple pilots who go to our church, and they'll talk to you about the one in 60 rule. A one degree difference, a one degree difference in trajectory over 60 miles will put you one mile off course. So, so a plane can travel 300 miles an hour. And in one hour, they can be five miles off course by a simple one-degree adjustment. And that's how powerful trajectory and direction is. I, I want to talk to you about a minor, what will appear to be a minor change you can make that I believe will help bring life to your life. I think it'll bring joy to your marriage, to your parenting, to your job. I think it'll have a profound difference on your discipleship. It will feel, it'll sound like you'll think it's such a small thing, and it is. But over the course of your life, this minor adjustment can put you in a radically, I believe, better position than if you don't pay attention to this dynamic. You can follow along in your message notes, and the first blank there in your message notes really kind of lays out what I want to talk to you about. It goes like this, that a get, that get to get to does not equal, I'm sorry, got to does not equal get to. Got to does not equal get to. You know what I'm talking about here. There are things in life that when you approach them, you approach them with an either I have to do this, I've got to do this, or I get to do this. Like, I'm glad to be here and engage this. This is the way so much of life works. And kind of in honor of our, our graduates today, they're at that point in life where even they didn't, when they didn't want to go to school, they didn't want to be there sometimes, their parents said, you got to go. And their parents brought a certain discipline to those kids' lives so that when they didn't want to do what was right for them, their parents made them. You have to eat. You got to eat your vegetables when they'd rather have cake, Right? And this is the way a lot of life works. You understand this. You understand that in life, so much of it is dictated by both sides of that coin. There are things you just have to do, and then there are things you get to do. But I don't know if you've thought about it this way, that in the life of a disciple, the subtle change between have to and get to, got to and get to, I believe can make a dramatic difference in the quality, the enjoyment of your discipleship, your walk with the Lord, being a part of the family of God. And that's what I want to talk to you about because I have an assumption, you don't have to agree with me, but I have an assumption that says most Christians, if not most, many, many, many Christians are kind of living their lives 
wrong. And I don't mean sinful. I mean there's something about the way they're doing life with God that doesn't produce in them passion and joy and a sense of adventure and direction. Instead, it's almost like their Christian life is a drudgery. And I I believe if you were to autopsy that reality, that they have to go to church, they have to do God's stuff, they have to. If you were to autopsy what's going on, why there's an absence of joy, why there's what's really at the center of that oftentimes is this subtle shift. It feels very small. It's just one word, or one letter actually, in one word. It's do they get to do the things of God? Do they get to follow God as a disciple or do they got to do it? And you've probably encountered a handful of Christians who over the course of your experience as a disciple, it was clear that they were living a, I get to do this kind of life. And so even when they would come across difficult things, their attitude, their engagement, their positivity, that wasn't just pretend positivity. I'm not talking about a Pollyanna mentality here. But they had a genuine positivity about the fact that God was allowing them to be a part of this world. That they knew seemed to know intuitively that their life had the ability to make a difference. Let's talk about that difference for just a second. You know what I'm talking about, because you've been around a handful of people in your engagement socially who were married, and you could kind of tell that they had to be together. They, they, They felt like the way they treated each other, the way they engaged each other, it seems like they didn't even necessarily want to be there but they kind of got to go to the dinner event together. They kind of have to do this thing together. I mean, after all, you're my spouse. These are the kind of people who on anniversary days, here's what they're thinking. I got to buy some flowers, right? Now, you do. You have to. That's the reality about life. There are things you have to do. But then there are the other people you've been around in their marriage, and it's like, it's anniversary day. I get to buy her flowers. You see the difference? You know that you've, you've lived some of this. You've observed some of this. As as our graduates go on to adulthood, as you mature as a disciple, one of the things we hope happens is the very things that you're told about from the Scripture that Christians are supposed to do, they have to do them, that they don't stay in the have-to category, but they actually become the things that Christians get to do. So which is it? Do you have to do it? Or do you get to do it? Well, it's both. But one pattern of thinking tends to put a person in a particular direction. And another pattern of thinking tends to put them in a different direction. So I want to ask you today, as a disciple of Jesus, are you a have-to disciple? Who does the religious stuff because you have to? It's not wrong. It's better than not doing it. Or are you a get-to Christian that engages the God stuff with a certain joy and anticipation? Let's think about that for a second. Last week I talked about Romans chapter 12. I'm going to talk about that passage again. Romans chapter 12 begins with Paul explaining that for every disciple, so everybody here is following Jesus, every disciple, here's what's going on. Jesus gave so much stuff He gave his life. He gave up heaven. Jesus' gift is so amazing that your reasonable act of service, your reasonable worship is to give your life totally to him. In light of all that he's done, it's reasonable that you give your whole life over to him. 
And Paul is going to use the rest of that chapter then to talk about some implications of what it means if you've given your whole life over to him. But what he starts with is what I'm trying to help you understand. He starts with, if you really understand all that Jesus has done, and then you think about your own sacrifice and following him, the truth is, is his sacrifice outpaces your sacrifice. What he's done for you will always be more than you could ever do for him. The benefit you get out of the relationship is so much greater than anything he gets out of the relationship. So in light of all that, it's only reasonable that you would give your entire life over to him. Paul's implication very simply is is if you haven't given your whole life over to him, you probably don't understand the benefit, the joy, the wisdom, the satisfaction that comes from a life totally devoted to God. Because if you did then you wouldn't see your sacrifice as sacrifice. You would see your sacrifice as reasonable. You you, you following me? So what Paul's trying to express here is what every parent wants for their kids. Hey, kids, I'm making you eat vegetables today and not cake because it's good for you. I know you don't want to, and that's all right. Kids don't have to want to eat vegetables, but they have to eat vegetables. But one day, I'm not going to be there to make you eat vegetables. My hope is, is the structure I'm providing in this home will teach you that when that structure is not there, that some of the things that are good for you, you now do because you want to do them, not because you have to do them. Do you see the difference? Same thing's true in your spiritual life. There are things that the Bible's crystal clear that Christians should and shouldn't do. There are certain behaviors we're supposed to gravitate towards, and there are certain behaviors we're supposed to avoid. You can start with the list of the Ten Commandments. So do Christians have to do them? Yes. Yes. But you can grow spiritually as a disciple so that you don't simply think about what you're supposed to do and not do in a way that's drudgery or obligation. You can actually think about the things you're supposed to do and not do in a way that feels very much like a willing choice to participate in exactly what God has for you. The the psalmist David, who killed Goliath and becomes king of Israel, he talks about this. (laughs) Listen to this phrase. It's going to surprise you. If you grew up in a church full of kind of sour Christians, this verse will surprise you. You ready? David says, I delight in your law, and I meditate on it day and night. So when David thought about all the rules that followers of God are supposed to have, David says not, I'm overwhelmed by your law. Um, I am in awe of your law. I am reminded of how broken I am when I think about your law. That's not what he says. He says, I delight. I, I take joy in this law. So it's not optional. I take joy in the law that you've given That, my friends, is a subtle shift in your walk with the Lord that if you'll make it the shift from I have to to I get to will open a door for you that I believe will bring you joy and meaning. It'll cancel out so much of the enemy's effectiveness in your life to slow you down, to distract you. It is a huge deal, and it is the next blank on your message notes. It is a matter of the heart. 
And the behavior can look the same. I mean, some people do it because they have to, and it's not wrong. It's better than not doing it. But some people seem to take joy in following God. And which Christians, if you were picking, would you rather hang around with? I've hung around both a lot. Can I be honest with you? I've been both. Sometimes I am both. I can be split personality. I can, I can do both of those things. I, I've been there. But this subtle shift between I must and I can, I have to, I get to choose this. I got to, but I get to. Paul understood that this was a matter of the heart, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret for, for Christians, and this blows my mind. If you've ever wondered if God's grace was special and if his if he was good, this verse, to me, helps set the record once and for all. So Paul is writing to the Philippian church, the church at the city of Philippi, and he's trying to help them understand this matter of the heart stuff, matter of the heart stuff. Because Paul knew something that every good parent knows, every good grandparent knows, every good aunt and uncle knows, that if we can teach a kid to want the stuff that is good for them, then Three-fourths of the battle is won. Three-fourths of the battle is won. So Paul, instead of just giving his churches over which he has responsibility, a list of rules and obligations. Oh, and then when you get done with that, do this. And then when you get done with that, do this. Oh, and don't forget to sign up for this. Oh, and then let's make sure we do this. Oh, and while you're doing that, let's give this. Instead of doing all that, Paul explains the matter of the heart, and he shows a special insight here that I think will be encouragement to you. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, here's what he writes. He's talking about the work of God, and he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good, his good purpose. So here you are as a disciple. You're walking life, and so you have this sense of the options in front of you. You can go have to or get to. But what you may not have realized is that the very Spirit of God that seals you as his son or daughter that spirit of God is doing something beyond just sealing you and setting you on a path. That spirit of God is actually inside of you working to change your will. For it is God who is at work in you to will, and he's given you power to act. He's affecting your emotions, your affect, your desire, and in your growth as a disciple, what happens is, is the things that used to be drudgery because you just really wanted the other thing, but God says Christians should go here. The things that used to be drudgery, one of the proofs that you're growing is not that they're not attractive anymore, but your affections, your heart, your will is actually shifting so that the things that used to hold you captive in your imagination now have lost some of their luster as a temptation, because God is at work in you, affecting your will, and he's giving you power to act in accordance with the will to which he's calling you. This is the difference between got to and get to. Come on, disciples, you know what I'm talking about, right? Over the course of your life with Jesus, even if it's only been six months, you know those things that capture your imagination, that want to set up strongholds, that want to tear down everything that God's trying to build up. And the reason they're temptation is because 
there's something in your heart that is attracted to it, that's pulled towards it. That's normal. You're not broken. That's life this side of heaven. So what are you supposed to do? Just resist. Yeah, that's actually part of it. The Bible actually says we're supposed to resist the devil. We're supposed to not give in. We're supposed to resist sexual temptation. That's one specific verse from the New Testament. We're supposed to resist. But that's not all you're supposed to do. You're supposed to also, you get to also talk to the God who has sealed you as his son or daughter, and you get to say to him, now, God, would you change my will so that that thing that is pulling me away from you towards it, so that that thing doesn't have quite the hold on me that it currently has. And God can actually grow your will in the direction of the things that bring life. Now, let me give you a practical uh, example of this. Um, disciples are called by the Lord in both the Old and the New Testament, specifically the book of James, to monitor their words. So coarse speech, speech that is dishonoring, speech that is untrue. Three categories, there's more. These are things disciples are supposed to avoid. Coarse speech, dishonoring language, and things that are untrue. Crystal clear in the New Testament, every Christian is called to do those things. But the truth is, let me just pick one of them. Let's say coarse language is a thing for you. So under excitement, under a little bit of tension, your words go dark, fuzzy, whatever. You pick your adjectives. I don't care, all right? Just don't cuss, all right? So that's where you go naturally. Maybe that's what you've seen. Maybe that's what your industry does. But you know disciples aren't really supposed to talk like that, even though they do. They're not supposed to. So you feel this stirring of the Spirit. It kind of convicts you on occasion. There it is in front of you. So what are you going to do now? Are you just going to not do it anymore? I'm just going to try harder. Well, actually, that's not bad. But that's not all that you have to do. And what are you going to... How are you going to respond to that prompting of the Spirit? Are you, as he brings conviction, are, are you just going to like wallow in that? Because that's what the accuser loves. You know that the word Satan in Hebrew, ha-satan, it means the accuser? His name literally is the one who accuses. So it's interesting. He tempts, and then when you fail, he accuses you that your failure defines you. And it's a fascinating thing. He both gets you to stumble, and then he kicks you when you down. He accuses you for having stumbled. So it's a wonderful little gig he's got going. It works for him. But when that's happening, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, Paul lets us know that because the Spirit of God that seals you as a son or daughter is still at work in you, it's not a once and done and God has left you on your own. It's a once done and God is with you forever Because God is with you, he is available for you to talk to him about your will. Now, God, you know that I have this proclivity. You know I'm a little loose here. You know I don't really want to be. You know that I feel ashamed on occasion. And it's not what my mom's making me do, my dad's making me do. It's what I I think you're calling me to do. It's not what my work's making me do. God, would you affect my will? Would you change my heart? Would Would you give me power so that I don't go there? Now, let me make something clear. If you approach this, I have to not talk like that anymore, which you shouldn't. But if that's all you have versus a, I get the very God who sealed me, who signed me. 
I get his participation in the life he's called me to. If you approach it as a have to versus a get to, I'm just telling you, it's harder. It's harder. No, you get to have God touch your mouth. You get to have him help you not be coarse, to be honoring, to to tell the truth. You get that. And you get it because he's at work in you. And you get to remember that when you do that, your life acts like a rudder, James tells us. Your, Your mouth acts like a rudder in your life, James tells us. And so what you get is the ability of God to help you set the direction of your life with your words. It's something you get, not have to do. You get to have God with you as your words set the course of your life. That's what James tells us, that the the tongue is one of the smallest members and one of the most unruly, and it's like a rudder on a ship, and it sets direction. Those are his words, not mine. And you get God available to you to help you set the direction of your life with your words. It's pretty cool, right? So let me just tease this out. Let's pick another category. Let's say it's the mouth again, and now we're going to be on the category of just telling the truth. So your, your, your five-year-old lies. By the way, all five-year-olds lie. They do. They're demonically inspired, clearly. And uh, you, they can look right at you, and you know that they have taken the candy. They're actually eating the candy. And you say, did you get the candy you weren't supposed to get? And while they're holding the candy, they will look at you and go, no, I didn't get the candy. I wasn't supposed to. I mean, it's clearly the devil is at work in kids. All right, so. But let's just go a little older. So you're, you're an older person, and when they're a kid, let me tell you what you don't do. You don't go to Revelation chapter 20 and tell your four- and five-year-old kid, you can't lie because liars have their place in the lake of fire. That's what Revelation says. Hey, four-year-old, hey, hey, don't lie. Liars have their place in the lake of fire. And then there's seven. Hey, don't lie. Liars have their place in the lake of fire. Is it true? <laughs> yeah, thank God. God redeems liars. Oh, because otherwise they have a place in the lake of fire. But that's not what you lead with because you don't. Listen, you know this, parents. You don't want your kids so afraid. Even though there's a lot of fear to be had with lying, what you actually want is them not to adjust their behavior simply out of fear of retribution. That has such low returns over time, fear of retribution. What has high returns over time is, especially as they get older and they can process more abstractly and they can begin to think about the future, so somewhere in middle school and into high school, the reason why you start talking about them differently is you don't want just fear to keep them from lying because then when they're not afraid, they're free to lie. You actually want the power of the truth to be at work in their life. So you start talking about the life that is marked by integrity and the power behind that. You start sharing with them Jesus' words. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, speak without duplicity because when you do that, people will believe what you say. You tell the story of the boy who cried wolf because you want the positive side of what James is talking about when he talks about the power of the tongue to attract them. Not simply the, now, should they be afraid? Yeah. 
Because over time, coarse language, dishonoring language, lying words, over time will shipwreck their lives. That's what James says. The tongue will shipwreck you if you're not careful. But wise people, wise guardians, wise church people, they get that there's an opportunity to press into the opportunity with God, not just be fearful of the dark side that happens when sin has had its heyday in our life. They're both true. So again, which are you? Are you a got-to Christian or are you a get-to Christian? Do you got to read your Bible or do you get to read your Bible? Do you got to pray or do you get to pray? Do you got to give or do you get to give? Do you got to serve or do you get to serve? Do you got to honor your spouse or do you get to honor your spouse? Oh, same behavior. And looking from the outside, you may not be able to tell the difference. But over time, that heart, something's happening to that heart. Over time. And as a disciple, you have available to you the power and the presence of God to begin to uh, uh, impact your heart. Years ago, Jill and I, um, we had been married a few years, and things were good. We, honestly, we had a better marriage than most people we knew. That is objectively true, because they would tell us stuff, and we'd be like, oh, God, and they would leave. So glad we're not them, right? But we still had stuff that we had to work on. We still had stuff we had to work on. And so we began to get a little bit more intentional. We've done that a handful of times over the last, it'll be 30 years this December, I'm that fortunate to be married to that amazing lady over there for 30 years. And um, so one of the conversations we had early on, because I was going to be in ministry, was like, how do I protect myself against sexual temptation and very broken people? So there's my own thing. There's very broken people. Those can come together in some very ugly ways. And the Bible's pretty clear that the quickest way for me to disqualify myself for Christian leadership is to live a morally um, careless life, all right? So sexual stuff, money stuff, blah, blah, blah. Right, you get that. So we're having this conversation, and I, I tell my wife this story about my youth pastor who pulls me aside and he talks to me in the most stern ways about sexual purity as a young man. I'm not married. It's years before I meet Jill. And that conversation got in my head. And it wasn't just the bad things that could happen to me. Like he didn't show me pictures of sexual diseases and all that stuff, try to scare me straight and all that good stuff. No, no. What he did was he... Talk to me about what was at stake for me and what I could gain if I gave all of my life, including my intimate life, to God. Now, did it make it easier? No. No, it, it's very difficult. In fact, I, I, I feel fortunate because I think it's even more difficult today. I think kids are bombarded, young people are bombarded more and more than ever with sexual imagery. I just think that the enemy is being very successful in our culture to distract and mar, if he could, the image of God in people and make them feel very broken, right? So, so I have this youth pastor who does this thing, and then my wife and I are married, and we're talking about it, and so we decided, here's some rules we put in place, that I wouldn't be alone with a woman that I wasn't married to or genetically related to. So I wouldn't have meetings alone, wouldn't be in a car alone, wouldn't be in a closed room alone. And so for the last 30 years, um, you can, uh, like literally, I think there was twice, I found myself in a situation alone and immediately called my wife and was like, hey, just let me keep you on the phone because, you know, I, I'm in a place and I don't want to 
be here. And so we, we call that in our house the Mike Pence rule. And in our house, that's something to be honored. I know it's not in our culture, but listen to me. I got the platform. All right, so send the emails if you want. So anyway, so that's our rule. So here, now that I'm there and we've got like 30 years at this, um, here's the question I have to ask myself. Do I have to obey those rules? Or do I get to obey those rules that we've agreed on? Can I tell you where I am? I get to. I get to put in place some boundaries so I don't accidentally get accused, let alone do anything. When technology ramped up and everything was accessible here in your hand, we had an opportunity to talk about what else do I get to do. So I don't have private accounts that my wife doesn't have access to. Nobody can send me any information electronically that ultimately she could not see because she has every password. She knows how to get into every one of my accounts. So if somebody sends me a Facebook message, you know, like an old friend from high school, maybe an old girlfriend, she can see it. Now, when I share that with people that are struggling in their marriage on this issue, and I hear that, I can tell the way their eyes go dim, that they're hearing me say this is something they have to do. But they're not listening right. They don't, you don't have to do that. You get to be transparent with your spouse about anything that can impose on your sexual morality. You get to be transparent. You don't have to. And the difference is, is I understand what's at stake. Even if I don't do anything, what is possibly at stake? I don't have to do anything. I'm an adult. I really can do whatever I want. That's the power of being an adult. That's why we try to get our kids ready for it, because it's an incredible power. And with great power, do you know the rest of the line comes great responsibility? Thank you, Spider-Man. Yes, exactly. With great power comes great responsibility. It's true. It's not in the Bible, but it should be, right? It's there in principle. So I don't have to obey these rules. I get to obey these rules. So let's tease this out in the scriptures. Paul and other biblical writers pick a topic that is so emotionally charged in churches that I think it is the perfect example for us to see how the heart, the get to versus the got to, how the heart affects so many matters of life. So he takes an emotionally charged topic and he teases out how when the heart is in the get to category, it does one thing. And when the heart is in the got to category, it does another. When Paul does this in the New Testament, he's just retrieving Old Testament language and kind of bringing it into his modern time, and now we have it in ours. And what Paul does, and so get ready for this, Paul actually talks about money. Now, just so we're clear, I'm not talking about money today. I want to talk to you about what Paul does with money. I don't want to get stuck on the money issue. I want to show you what Paul does with money to show you a spiritual principle about this got-to, get-to thing. So Paul must have in mind Exodus chapter 35. This is where Moses and the children of Israel are in the wilderness, and they want to build a tabernacle. So this is a mobile tent of meeting, and um, there's no money for it because, you know, they were all slaves and stuff. And so uh, even though they leave Egypt with a lot of stuff, all the stuff's in the people's hands. And so no one person can buy the stuff, build the stuff, do the stuff, pay for the stuff. So they decide, as a group of people, it'd be beneficial to have a place where we can meet, talk to God, do the thing. So let's raise an offering. It sounds familiar in churches, right? That's the point where everybody starts checking out. You don't have to because I'm not doing that, all right? 
But I want you to see the language used in Exodus chapter 35. The language that is used in Exodus 35, I have no glasses. Let's see how this goes. Exodus 35. If you'll hold this paper in the front row, I might, no, I'm kidding. Um, And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them. You see those words? Willing and heart moved them. They came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting, for all its service, for the sacred garments, all who were, there's our word, willing. And man, so they willingly bring it. They like celebrate, waving the stuff in the air. And then when it's done, there's a celebration. Now imagine if Moses said, now here's the deal. We need to build a tent of meeting. And it's going to cost, I'll make up a number, um, 100,000 shekels. Because shekel sounds like a biblical word. And so there's 100,000 of us here. Each of you owe one shekel. Let's bring those shekels. How many shekels came in this week? Oh, no. Send out that email reminder about the shekels. <laughs> you know, they're at 999,000 shekels, whatever it is. I don't know. You see the difference? No, that's not what happened. When the heart moves spiritually, the things that could be obligation become joy. This is what David said. Later on, David's going to build a permanent temple. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, David gives us an insight to his heart on doing the thing. Again, we're using money because it's so emotional, right, in churches. And I'll be honest, as a pastor, I hate talking about money because I don't want to be associated with those monkeys who screwed it up. I hate it. But man, there's not a better subject to understand the heart matter because it's so emotional. So when David's talking about the temple, he says, God, I'll paraphrase for you. You can read it in Chronicles 29, 1 Chronicles. He says, God, what could I do to repay you? I'm just glad that I have the ability to do this. And David gives a ridiculous amount of money to build that temple. So did he have to? Well, sure. God had come to him and said, do it. This is going to be part of your legacy. You're going to be high, not just war. You're going to set up a temple. But if you ask David, do you have to? No, man. I don't have to do that at all. I get to do that. So in the New Testament, Paul has this stuff in his mind. You get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and there's two powerful phrases in this passage I want us to look at. It's the same kind of thing. Paul is raising money for the Hungry Christians and the work of God in Jerusalem. They're hungry. It's the center of operation. There's a lot of overhead. I I don't know all that goes into it, but he's raising money. And he begins to talk to the church at Corinth about it. And I want you to see the language he uses to describe the difference between the, you have to do this, Christians, because I'm the leader and I said so, and you get to do this. All right, look look at what happens. He, He gives a testimony of another church. He says, and now, brothers... We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So he's, not, he's talking to Corinth about Macedonia, all right? He's going to share a testimony. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So they're under trial, they got joy, and they have poverty. And how did that result? They were incredibly generous, this Macedonian church. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So this Macedonian church is like, hey, wait, pastor, we haven't finished the service. 
We've forgotten to take up offering. Do not let us leave here without taking up an offering. That has never happened before in the history of humanity. And it's not happened since. It happened at the Macedonian church. Now, so what happened? They moved. This is the power of this. They moved from a have to to a get to. Whatever was going on in their heart, there had been an openness so that the Spirit of God could affect in them both to will and to act to accomplish his purpose. Wow. When I pray for my kids, you know what I pray for? God, give them a heart to follow you because that will supersede any rule or wisdom I can give them. God, help them to guard their heart for it is the wellspring of life. So when Christians, like me on occasion, struggle with, as James said, language issues, can I tell you part of what's going on? There's some part of my discipleship that I need to ask God not to just help me guard my words. That's mechanically what the end result is. But between here and there, God, touch my heart. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So which is more powerful as a prayer? God, help me not to lie, bring dishonor, be coarse. Or, God, there's something inside my heart that in times of stress, excitement, carelessness, my words go in the wrong direction. God, whatever that is in my heart, would you root that out? God, I need your power to be at work affecting my will, my emotions, my affect. And I need you to give me power to act because left to my own, I'm going to sound like I've sounded. That's very different than just being consumed with getting it exactly right. So Paul says this Macedonian church has done some absolutely incredible things. And look what else he says. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave, here's the, here's the powerful line. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then they gave to us in keeping with God's will. So then he goes on to encourage them in a variety of ways. I'm going to give you four ways to climb out of the grave of got to. If your marriage is stuck in a got to grave, you got to get out of it. You don't have to love your wife. You don't have to serve her. Trust me, disciple. You want to, because on the other side of that, there's the sweet spot of marriage. Ladies, you don't have to respect your husband. Dear God, our culture tells you every day not to. You clearly don't have to. But on the other side of you choosing to honor, respect your husband is a life with your husband that is vital and encouraging to you. So here's four steps. Number one, if I lose my why, I lose my way. If I lose my why, I lose my way. Because your why helps you find your passion and experience joy in what you get to do. You're struggling with your spouse these days? Try to remember why you fell in love. My wife sent me a text this week. It's a picture of the building where we met in. Like I, she's, I, something to the effect of, I was so fortunate to meet you in this building. She was touring our old college campus where we met, and it was really cool. Well, I just had a moment to reflect on why I love this lady. And I'll be honest with you, there have been times over the last 30 years, it'll be 30 on December 30th, that um, I've had to remember why. Because life and circumstance, myself, herself, got in the way of my why, and I had to rediscover it. 
I remember the first time I laid eyes on her, she was beautiful. She was in the room for a special purpose, so that meant she was smart. I knew why she was there. Didn't know much about it. I knew she was at least bright. And really, that was it. I was done. Smartened, beautiful. So I was pretty much done. But beyond that, I discovered a lot about her. She loved the Lord. There were some things about her family that was um, meaningful to me. Um, she seemed to be really interested in what I was saying. That was a big deal. Um, she could play the piano. She could sing. I wanted to be a pastor. I thought that was essential. Um, so it was a lot of why I fell in love with her. And you know what? When, when we go through the hard stuff, because you do, don't you? You know what? If I remember my why, it brings me back to my purpose and it energizes me beyond the I have to do this to I get to do my life with this incredible lady. You see the difference? You don't have to, but you get to. Same thing's true with Jesus. You know, in this life with God, when I sometimes have wondered if God hears my prayer and he's forgotten and why is his timing not match anybody else's timing? Because that's sometimes what I think about God. I think he's really amazing, but he's pretty slow sometimes. And um, it's okay. You can be honest here. It's all good. Uh, but when I start thinking like that, you know what? I have to sometimes remember my why spiritually. For me, it's almost cliche, but it should never be. John 3.16, for me, is at the root of my why. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And I only have to reflect on the kind of scared and um, uncertain, insecure young man who one day knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has put his hands on his shoulder and said, I want to use you. I'm going to use your life. There was no doubt in my mind that happened. And then to see how God has been faithful over time, uh, when I get upside down a little spiritually, I have to just remember of exactly what my Savior did for me. And I ain't going to understand exactly what Paul was trying to say in Romans chapter 12. In light of all that God has done, it's only reasonable, Ben. It's not unreasonable. Your sacrifice is reasonable in light of all that God has done. Do you remember the list we've been going over? I want to go over it with you right now. Just a way of reminding you of just how awesome it is to walk with Jesus. And maybe it'll spark your why. Up on the screen, would you say it with me with I am chosen? One, two, three. I am chosen. I am changed. I'm a new creation. I'm forgiven. I'm blessed. I'm victorious. I'm set free. I am healed. I am free from condemnation. I am more than a conqueror. I am dead to sin. I'm alive with Christ. I'm accepted in Christ. I'm complete in Christ. This is your why, because he has done so much. So if your spiritual life is a little dry these days, tap back into your why. Number two, when you give yourself to the Lord, all the other giving, giving gets easier. Can I tell you the most important decision you'll make is to give yourself to the Lord, but I don't think sometimes we understand how complete that is. The day I submitted myself to his lordship, he called. I didn't do it. I just responded. But the day that happened, I was effectively saying, God, whatever else you call me to, I'm already saying yes to it. In fact, the big decision has already been made. So when you call me to corral my language, that's not asking too much. And it's not too hard because I've already given you my life. And when you call me to serve, you're not asking too much. I've already given my life. When you call me to give, you're not asking too much. I've already given my life. When you call me to express kindness where there has been harshness, you're not asking too much. 
I've already given my life. When you understand that your life belongs to God, whatever else he asks from you is not too much. And your love for him begins to fuel behavior versus just behavior management. I got to be good. Christians are good. My parents expect me to be good. I got to live up to the expectations. I got to do what my boss requires. No, no, no. You work unto the Lord. So I'm going to work with excellence that's unto the Lord. I don't care what my boss says. I honor my spouse because I'm a man of God called to serve, honor, and give, regardless of what the culture does. I deal with my addictions because I'm spirit-controlled. I'm not controlled by substance and experience. I get to press into that. Remember 2 Corinthians 8, 5? And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to us. It was easy for them to give money to Paul from Macedonia to go to the Jerusalem church because they had already given themselves to the Lord. Wherever you're struggling as a disciple, I don't want to be mean or harsh here, it's an opportunity for you to say, God, why is this so hard for me? What work is yet to be done in my heart? So I say to myself with Job, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look lustfully upon a woman. And yet my body, my mind, our culture wants to go there. So do I have to do that? Or do I get to ask God, God, I'm still drawn. Would you work in my life? Which is it? Number three, I think if you can discover how fun it is to give your life, to give what God has blessed you with in service to others and help to others, if you can discover how fun that is, it would change everything for you. I think the enemy has been very successful to say that if you give your life over to God, he's going to steal your joy. He's going to take away your fun. That's not true at all. Years ago, Jill and I looked around our community and we said there's not a church that we're aware of that we would feel great about inviting our friends to. That all the family could be leveraged in kingdom engagement. It seemed like to us there were churches that were good at various things. But in, at that time, Westchester, where we were living, so we decided to give ourselves all in to the process of starting a church. And then, without like being silly, it cost a lot. Time and effort and energy and a lot of money. And sometimes when I, like, I add up those things, I'm, in, I'm just like blown away by like, how much sacrifice that Jill, my kids, and not, not to be self-serving, but even I've been a part of. And it would be easy to let the enemy come into that place and go, look what all you've done. But the truth is, when I think about this place and what the Lord's allowed us to do, it has brought me incredible delight. And so the sacrifices, the time, in my case, a handful of stitches, so tell those stories at another time. So the physical sacrifice, I've shed my blood here. There's delight in that. Because that's what happens when you figure out what God's called you to do and you do it. The sacrifices, Paul said, we do not consider these present sufferings to be anything in comparison of the great reward that is awaiting us. I'm reminded of Jesus' words quoted in Acts chapter 20. 
It's more blessed to give than receive. When I was a kid, I was like, no way. This is like my dad telling me, it hurts me more than it hurts you. That's how I thought about it as a kid. But now that I'm older, can I be honest with you? It is more blessing. It is more of a blessing to give. That's why I love giving gifts to my kids, to others. That's why I love investing in kingdom purposes. That's why I like giving my time. Because the blessing that comes back It's a shift that happened between I have to do this to I get to do this. And I'm reminded from Proverbs 11 that a generous person, a person who's generous, that person prospers, that it comes back to them. When you refresh people, it actually comes, you are refreshed in return. That's what's happened here. Do you want to know who's grown as a disciple the most in the life of this church? I put up as an honest witness, I am the guy who's grown the most. Hey, I, every sermon I preach crosses through my heart. And so the time put into it really has a way of coming back. Isn't that powerful the way God works? But for me, the big one, the final reason why you can climb out of that hole is that one day you're going to see him. I want to remind you, don't forget, one day you're going to see him. And this life you've lived for him and with him by his power as imperfect as it was, everything you've done for him, you're going to lock eyes with your Savior one day. And the Bible doesn't tell us everything about that encounter, but it tells us a handful of things. And man, it jazzes me. Because one day my Savior is going to look at me and say, Ben, let's talk. And it's it's going to be the first time I've laid eyes on him. I've never seen him. Like I've had two near-death experiences and didn't see a thing. You might want to find a new church. So I don't know what that means. But I haven't seen him yet. But one day I'm going to see him. And when I see him, I'm, I know me. I'm going to want to say just, you know, oh, thank you. Like, I got, I got 100 questions. I can imagine I'm going to want to talk, but the Bible tells me I'm not going to be talking. That when we see each other, because I'm his child, not because I'm perfect, but because of his grace at work in me, because he has given me his spirit and that has animated, he's going to look at me, and I imagine him putting my hands on my shoulder, and he's going to say, you did it. I'm proud of you. That means that whatever sacrifice has ever been made, in that moment, it don't matter anymore. What anybody else has said about me is irrelevant. What I have said about myself doesn't matter. The biblical language is he's going to put his hand on on your shoulder and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful. And I get to, in this life, do things that impact eternity. I don't have to. I could be selfish. The culture encourages me to. My own flesh wants me to. But I get to give myself to the things of God. And one day, I'm going to stand before my Savior, and he's going to remind me that there was more to this life than just this life. And he's going to look me in the eyes, and he's going to say, you took what I gave you, and you did more with it. Well done, good and faithful. Do you know the next line? Enter into the joys of the Lord. You catch that word? The joys of the Lord. The joy that is available to us when we willingly follow. That is the sweet spot of discipleship. That's climbing out of the grave. That's getting it on the deepest of levels. Why don't you grab out your connect card? Let's take a couple steps together. You don't have to, but you get to pull out your Connect card. Yeah, it's all right. It's a joke. It's fine. 
Hey, if you haven't uh, yet committed your life to Jesus, I, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. The Bible says that he's the door, he's the gate, he's the way. And the Bible says that if you'll acknowledge that you're a sinner and that he is the Savior, you can have life with him. Specifically, if you'll believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> then you can be saved. And I want to lead you in a prayer in a moment, but right now I'd like you, if you're feeling moved, to take your pen and check next step A that says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. When we pray in a minute, you can do business with God. God, I can't save myself. I trust the work that you've done on the cross and in your resurrection to save me. I trust in that alone. I want you to be the leader. I'm going to take back seat. Or how about next step B? Today I'm choosing to be baptized. The way you get started is you check that box and it starts the conversation. Now, I got to tell you something, this next step is going to see out of, seem out of uh, alignment, but every time I sat down to finish this message, I kept coming back to this one. So this is for the two or three people that this applies to. So next step C says, hey, I believe I have the gift of giving. Let me tell you what that is. You already take joy in giving. So if you had the gift of teaching, I'd love to sit down with you and talk about teaching. One of my favorite things to do is sit down with people who have the gift of leading, and I talk about leadership with them. I love talking leadership with people who are gifted as leaders. But I haven't done much talking to people who have the gift of giving. So if you have great joy in giving, I don't know what amount that is. It's irrelevant. But if in your heart it brings you great joy, I'd love to buy you coffee and talk to you about that. I will not ask you for money. In fact, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to share with you some of the ways Jill and I got strategic about getting deep joy in our giving. And I'm not going to ask for anything from you. But I'd love to talk to those two or three people that say, I believe I have the gift of giving, and I'd like to explore that a little bit. I would consider it an investment in the way God has wired you. And I think I have some incredible stuff that I've learned about giving that has brought us deep joy. So, again, that's probably only two or three people. Check the box. It may take me a while to get to it, but we will do that before now and the end of the summer. Next step D, it says, I'd like to host a 4C small group. So please contact me with details. We're about to launch, launch summer groups. If you call this church home and you check the box, we'd be glad to communicate with you about what it is to use some of your time to impact some other people. And the next step, E says, send me the link for Grow One. This is Grow One. There's four of them. This is the first one. We buy you a meal. We take a couple hours of your time. We talk about what the church believes, where we're going, how we got here, and give you a chance to think about what it is to become a member here if you want to. You don't have to, even if you take the class, all right? And so if you check the box, we'll send you the link. Why don't you set that aside? If you call this church home, I'm going to give you right now a chance to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. And listen, I don't mean to be cheesy, but you don't have to do this. You don't have to for a couple reasons. There's generous people around you. They have. Before you got here, somebody already bought your seat, paid for the building. I mean, that, that's the church we're in. But you don't have to because at the end of the day, all giving of your life, of your time, of your emotion, and of your wallet is meant to be a free gift to God. So if you can't do that today, just don't give. It's okay. Go home, think about it, pray about it, figure out what you're gonna do with that. That's between you and the Lord. But for those of you that seem to Love doing it? Gosh, thank you. So my son was in the group up here today. And just as one parent on behalf of every one of them here, thank you, Four Corners Church, for paying for the bills, paying for the curriculum, paying for experiences, paying for staff, so that people, incredible people, could invest in my son. I can't tell you how grateful I am.
Thank you for giving beyond yourself. Jill and I are eternally grateful to this church for the impact on our kids. And mechanically, you did it a lot of ways. And one of those ways was you gave money to do very simple things. But it has had a profound impact on my kids and on me. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. Let's pray about our next steps on our offering right now. Lord, thank you that uh, we get to do life with you. Thank you that we get to read the word. Thank you that we get to pray. Thank you that we get to take next steps. Thank you that we get to give. Thank you that we get to serve. God, I pray that we would be a get-to church, that out of the overflow of that, there would be a joy in us. I lift up men and women today whose religion, whose faith has become doldrums, who they're discouraged today because they've lost the joy of their salvation. I pray that today they would be reminded of how awesome you are, how generous you are, and what a privilege it is to be your son or daughter. Lord, I lift up the men and women that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. I can't save myself. I trust the work you did on the cross and in your resurrection. I trust in that alone to save me. Father, I pray right now for our next steps and our offering that you would cause them to go far and wide. And thank you, Lord, for people who have made it a privilege to give to you, to be a part of your kingdom work. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.